Take two. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to episode 47 of 10 0. I'm Maria. And I'm Caitlin. <laughs> <laughs> so, what size parasite are we up to this We're week? We had a large eggplant. We had a large eggplant. Eggplant parasite. And <laughs> according to the app, the baby is 14.4 inches in length and 2.2 pounds. But, you know judging by how much pain I'm in every day. I, I say it's bigger than that. Oh, that was great. That was beautiful. <laughs> I'm crying right now. We we literally had to abort our life. I'm need, gonna need you to stop saying abort when we're talking about your child. <laughs> oh, God. Okay. So we had to restart. And start over because I gave away the gender and not very many people know what it is yet. We are Ugh. trying to keep it a secret. I obviously, but there's a very select few that know what we're having. Tried to keep it a secret. I don't even think Jim does. Oh. I feel like he probably does. I don't think we've ever actually talked about it. I mean, probably not. But I feel like we've also said, yeah. whatever pronoun. <laughs> so I've kind of adopted because you know, drama just loves to fill my life. I get rid of one thing and something starts. Yeah, like vicious cycle. It's fucking stupid. Um, I've decided that since people like to talk about me. And what I'm doing. Or, you know, supposedly what I'm doing. <laughs> um, Listen. I am neutral. I am Switzerland. Hold on. Hold on. That I am going to start telling people it's one gender. And start telling <laughs> other people that it's something else. And if they really want to argue about it, go for it. It's a goat. It's a baby. It's a baby goat. <laughs> it's a baby goat. Meh. <laughs> Oh my god. Speaking of goats. So, a couple years ago, I didn't know this, but certain breeds of goats scream. Yeah. Like, did not know until we had them. (laughs) So we got a set of twins. And they're like screaming at each other. Yeah. And we're like, what the fuck is that? That sounds like a human. Like, what is that? No, it sounded like they were dying. Oh, that too. And we're like, what the hell is going on? So we go out in the pasture, and we're looking, and then they, they scream. And we're like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> Ma! <laughs> I looked at Get Marcus your kids! Go, Why the fuck are they screaming at each other? We thought it was because they were babies. Yeah. No, that's just what boar goats do. I'm like, no wonder people fucking cook them and eat them. <laughs> They're fucking annoying. But the kids get a kick out of it. It's whatever. So update on me. Yeah, obviously put in my two weeks or my not my two weeks, but my resignation today. We're pre-recording again, so your, your uh, twenty-five days. My after. twenty-five days of resignation, NC, whatever you want to call it. 
one doesn't even count because I'll be on vacation. <laughs> right. We signed for the camper, so the camper is going to be delivered on Tuesday. Somebody's coming to look at our house. Yeah. Has he signed any contracts yet? No. I'm going to need him to get on it. Doesn't have to until Before we're like ready to stuff. go. Doesn't have to sign him until we're like ready to go. I know, but when is he? When is he putting in his notice for the other ones? He probably won't. Be honest. I just don't want you guys to end up getting screwed. I could get screwed. Like if he doesn't get a contract right away. And then... We have two more paychecks coming from our job. And my payout is sick time. I'm being a mom, okay? I know. <laughs> I'm trying to soothe your fears. <laughs> I'm just like, you guys have all these big plans and like set in stone on everything. And It'll be fine. I'm one of those people that has to have like a definitive plan. I mean, me too, but that's not my prerogative and, at and this that, point. And that is bugging the shit out of me. That's a Jeremy prerogative. <laughs> that Jeremy has not done it yet. I don't think he can sign a contract this early. Yeah, he can. Because we're not leaving till the second week of May. Yeah. You can do it up to two months in advance. Oh. Planning to leave the second week of May, go to South Dakota, do what we got to do. And then my sister graduates at the end of May. So we're going to be down there for that. Great. So you'll be back at the end of May. And then you'll be back again in June. Slash July. <laughs> I'm not going to be back. In, oh, yeah. Yes, we are. I will be anyway. He probably won't be. I'm like, I'm pretty sure you promised. <laughs> <laughs> well, oh, Lord. I also have to figure out how I'm going to get to a bridal shower that I still don't know when it is. So, there's that. So, April 22nd of 1886 in Ohio. Yay. This is one of Ohio's stupid laws Ohio passes a law that makes seduction illegal well I've broken that law <laughs> multiple times uh, covering all men over 18 who worked as teachers or instructors of women this law even prohibited men from having consensual sex with any woman of any age whom they were instructing oh okay in that case I'm not in that case, I haven't broken that law. <laughs> the penalty for disobeying this law, you may ask, ranged from two to ten years in prison. But how do they? I don't know. I feel like that's a somebody cried wolf thing. I feel like trying to prove that would be like trying to prove. That someone smoked a cigarette in their car with their kids. I mean, that you can at least somewhat prove it with a smell. Does your kid smell like smoke? Does your car smell like smoke? Bing. Well, yeah. But then there's, you know, the parents that roll the windows down. I would hope you roll your window down anyway, but. Okay, back in the day, they didn't. My dad smoked two packs a day. Ugh. 
and would always smoke in the car. My dad always. And the window was only cracked like that far. That way the ashes could go right out the window and that was it. Um, this was not the first law of its kind. Um, Virginia also made it illegal for men to have an illicit connection with any unmarried female of previous chaste character if the man did so by promising to marry the girl. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, 1848, New York made it illegal to under promise of marriage, seducing any unmarried female of previous chaste character. George's version of the seduction statute made it unlawful for men to seduce a virtuous unmarried female and induce her to yield to his lustful embraces and allow him to have carnal knowledge of her. You said the word induce. This sounds like a book that has Fabio on the cover. Oh god, I am so sorry for everyone's ears. Oh god. You're welcome. I about choked up my water. Oh lord. Am I raw? No. It almost sounds like a Nora Roberts. Yes, like, that's what I was thinking. Novel. That's what I was thinking. Thanks, Grandma. Oh, <laughs> These laws were only sporadically enforced, but a few men were actually prosecuted and convicted. In Michigan, a man was convicted of three counts of seduction, but the appeals court did everything in its power to overturn the decision. It threw out two charges because the defense reasoned that the woman was no longer virtuous after the couple's first encounter. No shit! What was your first <laughs> I, I don't understand. The other charge was overturned after the defense claimed that the woman's testimony that they had sex in a buggy was medically impossible. Wait a minute. The sex in a buggy was impossible? Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure we all watched Titanic. I'm just saying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we did. Pretty sure there's numerous people who had sex in the backseat of a car. You're uh, welcome. <laughs> I'm losing brain cells. Like, some of these true crime facts of the day make me, like, lose brain cells. Uh, <sighs> so bad. You're welcome. Anyways. You want to go first or you want me to go first? I don't really care. Okay, I'll go first. Though. Okay. So, we are going to... I'm going to butcher these pronunciations because they're all French. So, fair warning. Um, Le Mans... France. Um, there was a pair of sisters, Christine and Leah Pappen. Christine was born March 8th of 1905, and Leah was born September 15th of 1911. They were born to Clemence and Gustave Pappen, and they came from a very troubled family. So while Clemence was dating Gustave, it was rumored that she was having an affair with her employer. Okay? Whatever. Okay. You do you. Um, However, she became pregnant. Um, so Gustave married her in October 1901. Five months later, their first daughter, Amelia, was born. So there's three sisters total. Okay. Suspecting that Clemence was still having an affair with her employer, Gustave found a new job in another city and announced that the family would move. Clemence declared she would rather take her own life than leave the Le Mans. 
marriage obviously did not work and Gustav began to drink. Um, their mother was not considered to be nurturing and was deemed unsuitable for motherhood. So Christine was given to her paternal aunt and uncle soon after birth. And she lived with them for seven years. <clears throat> Sorry. In 1912, when Amelia was nine or ten-ish, um, it was alleged that Gustav raped her. Um, this is where it gets kind of messed up. Mm -hmm. um, Clements accepted that Amelia had seduced her father and sent her to the Bon Pastor Catholic Orphanage, which was known for its brutality and discipline. Soon after that, Amelia was joined by Christine and Leah, who Clements intended would remain at the orphanage, I cannot say that word for some reason, until 15, when they could be employed. So the parents divorced in... 1903 or 1913 it's not really well documented yeah in 19 god bless america 1918 i don't know how i got 11 and 18 mixed up amelia decided to enter a convent effectively ending her relations with her family can't say i blame her as far as anyone knows she lived out the remainder of her life there during Christine's time at the orphanage, she also received the calling to become a nun. However, their mother was not for this. She forbade it and instead placed her out for employment. Christine had been trained in various household duties in the convent, um, which eased her transition into being a live-in maid. Christine was described as a hard worker and a good cook, but who could be a Leah was described as quiet, introverted, and obedient, but was considered less intelligent than Christine. Oh. Um, employers were content with her work. However, Clements was not satisfied with their pay and forced them to seek better paid opportunities. Um, they preferred to work whenever possible and worked for various homes in the Lamonts area. Right. So... Um, 1926. So fast forwarding a little bit. Yep. Christine and Leah found live-in positions as maids for the Lancelin, Lancelin family. Um, so there was a married couple and their younger daughter Genevieve lived in the house. Okay. After a few months of service, Christine convinced um, the mother to hire Leah as a chambermaid. The two girls dedicated their lives to working long days in the However, um, some years after Christine and Leah started working for the family, the mother developed depression and the girls became the target of her mental illness. She would scrutinize the cleaning and have become critical of everything that they did. Um, there were various occasions in which she would physically assault the sisters. Um, the abuse got to the point where she would slam their heads into the wall. Asshole. So. February 2nd of 1933. The father was supposed to meet his wife and daughter for dinner at um, the home of a family friend. So mom and daughter had been out shopping and they returned home that afternoon. None of the lights were on in the house, which okay. was unusual. The sisters explained to the mother that the power outage had been caused by Christine urinating into an electrical socket. Oh. 
Mom became irate and attacked the sisters on the first floor and landing. Christine lunged at Genevieve and gouged her eyes out. So Genevieve is the daughter. Okay. Remember? Yeah. So Leah joined in the struggle and attacked the mother, also gouging her eyes out as ordered by Christine. Christine ran downstairs to the kitchen where she retrieved a knife and a hammer. She brought both weapons upstairs where the sisters continued their attack. At some point, one of them grabbed a heavy pewter pitcher and used it to strike the heads of both of them. In the middle of this, they mutilated the um, butts and thighs of the women. Experts who later responded to the scene estimated that the attack lasted about two hours. The bodies were found um, later that evening. The father came home and assumed that his wife and daughter had left for the dinner party and proceeded to the party himself. When he arrived at the friend's house, he found that his family was not there. He returned to the residence with his son-in-law at approximately 6.30 or 7, where the, they discovered that the entire house was still dark except for a light in the sister's room. The front door was bolted shut from the inside, so they were unable to enter the house. However, they found... Um, they went to the police station to get help okay. so they could get in the house. Uh, with the policeman that responded, um, they made entry into the home by climbing over the garden wall. Once inside, they found the bodies of the mother and daughter. They'd both been bludgeoned and stabbed to the point of being unrecognizable. Okay. Um, their eyes had been gouged out and in the, were in the folds of their scarves around their neck. And one of Genevieve's was found under her body and the other on the stairs near their bodies. And somebody was apparently on their period. I don't know which one. Um, there, there was menstrual blood smeared yeah. every, everywhere, all the places. So we just had to talk about that. Sorry. As I'm eating... Peanut M&M's. And I just happened to put a red one in my mouth. You're welcome. So, the father went upstairs to see if the sisters were still alive. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, After an officer unlocked the door, um, they found the sisters naked in bed together with a bloody hammer with hair still on it uh, on a chair near the bed and upon questioning the sisters immediately confessed so there is a trial obviously Um, the sisters confessed to the murder immediately however they claimed that it had been committed in self-defense during the trial the sisters protected each other and each confessed to sole responsibility for the crimes committed they were placed in prison and separated from each other. Christine became extremely distressed because she could not see Leah. At one point, prison officials relented and allowed them to spend a little time together. Christine reportedly threw herself at Leah, unbuttoned her blouse, and begging her, please say yes, suggesting an incest relationship. (laughs) I'm dying, excuse me. Unfortunately, back in that day. Well, yeah. 
It was a lot more common. In July 1933, Christine experienced a fit or, you know, seizures mm -hmm. um, in which she tried to gouge her own eyes out and had to be put in a straitjacket. She then made a statement to the investigating magistrate in which she said that on the day of the murders, she had experienced an episode like the one she had just had in prison and that this was what caused the murders. The sister's chosen lawyer pleaded platypus pled not guilty by reason of insanity on behalf of the sisters um, they demonstrated signs of mental illness such as limiting eye contact because that's you know and staring straight ahead appearing to be in a daze the court appointed three doctors to administer psychological evaluations of the sisters to determine their mental state mm -hmm. they concluded that the two had no mental disorders and deemed them sane and fit to stand trial they also believed that Christine's affection for her sister was based on family ties and not an incestuous relationship, as others had suggested. However, during the September 1933 trial, medical testimony noted a history of mental illness in the family. Their uncle had died by suicide while their cousin was living in an asylum. Oh. Yeah. The psychological community struggled and debated over a diagnosis for the sisters after much consideration it was concluded that christine and leah suffered from shared paranoia disorder which is believed to occur when groups or pairs of people are isolated from the world developing paranoia and in which one partner dominates the other right this was especially true of leah whose personality was overshadowed by the dominant christine after the trial, jurors took 40 minutes to determine that the Pappen sisters were indeed guilty of the crime of which they had been accused. Leah, thought to be under the influence of her older sister, was given a 10-year sentence. Christine was initially sentenced to death at the guillotine, although that sentence was later commuted to life imprisonment. So, um, the separation from Leah proved to be too much from Christine. Her condition deteriorated rapidly once they were apart. She had written various letters pleading to be with Leah. However, this was not granted. She experienced bouts of depression and madness and eventually started refusing to eat. Prison transferred her to a mental institution in Rennes, I think, hoping that she would benefit from professional help. Um, still separated from Leah, she continued to starve herself and died of... Cachexia, I think, on May 18th of 1937. Leah fared better than her sister. Um, she ended up serving only eight years of her 10-year sentence due to good behavior in prison. After her release in 1941, she lived in the town of Nantes, where she was joined by her mother, unfortunately. She assumed a, fate, a false identity and uh, earned a living as a hotel maid. Some accounts say that Leah died in 1982, but there was a French film producer who claims to have discovered her living in a hospice center in France in 2000 while creating a film. He claimed to be Leah had suffered a stroke, which had rendered her partially paralyzed and unable to speak, and this woman died in 2001. They were buried together in a cemetery in Nantes. Huh. That is the story of the Papad sisters. So, 
eliminate eye contact and the staring off into space. They disassociated. Right. Due to trauma. Yeah. Because they, you know, murdered people. So, seeing them fit to stand trial, I kind of understand, but I kind of don't understand keeping them separated. I think like the, if you knew that it was mental to one of their health, they were in prison. What does it matter? I think the shock of seeing them naked in bed together is probably what probably did that, unfortunately. Yeah. And then them reuniting and one of them flinging open their shirt. Right. You do you, but but if you if you know that it. A, a mental issue thing and not incestuous give them supervised visitation and also would require someone to sit with them What you got? So I got a twofer. I got a twofer. It's pretty much true crime and paranormal all world in one. That's always a good thing. What you got? The the Liska Axe Murder House. Mm. So June of nineteen twelve. We're going to the ninth and the early morning of the tenth in the town of Ballista, Iowa. Why did they think this was in New York or something? I don't know. Why did I think there was like 5,000 freaking exorcist house the other day? I mean, because there are. But Right. <laughs> <laughs> this of the Moore family and two guests were found bludgeoned in the Moore residence. All eight victims, including six children, had severe head wounds from an axe. Mm-hmm. A lengthy investigation yielded several suspects one of whom was tried twice. And the first trial ended in a hung jury, and the second ended in an acquittal. And the crime, to this day, remains unsolved. Uh-huh. The Moore family consisted of parents, Josiah and Sarah, and their four children, Herman, Herman Montgomery, age 11, Mary Catherine, age 10, Arthur Boyd, age seven, and Paul Vernon, age five. That's depressing. The Moors were well known and liked in their community. On June 9th, Mary Catherine invited Ina May, age eight, and Lena Gertrude Stillinger, age 12, to spend the night. That evening, the visiting girls in the Moore family attended the Presbyterian Church, where they (laughs) already (laughs) three paragraphs in already the fuck where they participated in the children's day program, which Sarah had coordinated. After the program ended at 9:30 p.m., the Moores and the Stillinger sisters walked to the Moores' house, arriving between 9:45 and 10 p.m. (laughs) 
at 7 a.m. the next day, June 10th, Mary Peckham, the Moore's neighbor, became concerned after she noticed that the family had not come out to do their morning chores. Sounds like a nosy neighbor to me. Well. Given the circumstance, I'll, I'll allow it. Right. But. Peckham knocked on the Moore's door. When nobody answered, she tried to open the door and discovered that it was locked. Peckham let the Moore's chickens out and called Ross Moore, Josiah's brother. Like Peckham, Moore received no response when he knocked on the door and shouted. Ross unlocked the front door with his copy of the house key. While Peckham stood on the porch, Ross went into the parlor and opened the guest bedroom door, where he found Ina and Lena Stillinger's bodies on the bed. Moore immediately told Peckham to call Henry Horton. Horton, here's a That's all I, that's all I, I just thought about. I'm the only one who thought about that. Um, I feel horrible about it, but that's the only thing I thought. <laughs> he was Villisca's primary peace officer at the time, who arrived shortly thereafter. Horton searched that the entire Moore family and the two Stillinger sisters had been bludgeoned to death. Jesus. The murder weapon, an axe belonging to Josiah, was found in the guest room where the Stillinger sisters were found. Mm-hmm. Doctors concluded that the murders had taken place between midnight and 5 a.m. Two spent cigarettes were found in the attic that suggested the killer or killers patiently waited in the attic until the Moore family and the Stillinger guests were asleep. That's even more unsettling. That's like, um, what's his face that I did? The plant. Yes. That's what it was. The killer or killers began in the master bedroom where Josiah and Sarah Moore were sleeping. Josiah received more blows from the axe than any other victim. His face had been cut to such an extent that his eyes were missing. Jesus. They used the blade of the axe on Josiah while using the blunt or they attempted to do so. So nine months beforehand... A similar case of axe murder occurred in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Two axe murder cases followed in Ellsworth, Kansas and Paola, Kansas. Maybe that's how you say that. Um, The cases were similar enough to raise the possibility of having been committed by the same person. Other more... I can't talk. Other murders reported as possibly being linked to these crimes include the numerous unsolved axe murders on the Southern Pacific Railroad from 1911 to 1912, solved axe man of New Orleans killings, as well as several other such murders during the time period. So now we'll get into who the suspects were. Okay. So, Andrew Sawyer was a transient and was unaccounted for the night of the murders. He was interrogated, but he was never charged. Okay. Reverend George Kelly was an English-born traveling minister in town on the night of the murders. Kelly was described as peculiar, having reportedly suffered a mental breakdown as a teenager. As an adult, he was accused of peeping and several times asking young women or girls to pose nude for him. 
Oh. On June 8th of 1912, Aliska to teach the Children's Day Services, which the Moore family attended on the 9th. And he left town between 5 and 5.30 a.m. on June 10th, just hours before the bodies were discovered. Uh-huh. Reverend Kelly had confessed to the murders in court, but the jury never believed his confession. See, that's a double-edged sword. To me, anyway. Yes. In the weeks that followed, he displayed a fascination with the case and wrote many letters to the police um, and family of the deceased. This aroused suspicion and a private investigator wrote back to Reverend Kelly asking for details that the minister might know about the murders. He replied with great detail, claiming to have had heard sounds and possibly witnessed the murders. Mental illness made authorities question whether he knew the details because of having committed them or was imagining his account. In 1914, two years after the murders, Kelly was arrested for sending obscene material through the mail. Oh. He was sexually harassing a woman who applied for a job as his secretary. Well. He was sent to St. Elizabeth's Hospital in um, Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. Investigators believe that Kelly could be the murderer of the Moore family. In 1917, he was arrested for the Villisca murders. Police obtained a confession from him, however, it followed many hours of interrogation, and Kelly later recanted. After two separate trials, he was acquitted. See, that doesn't sit right. With his daughter-in-law, though oh. no evidence supports this. So he had motive. Yeah. Um, William Blackie Mansfield, who was allegedly hired by Senator Jones to murder the Moore family. Oh. Nine months before the murders at Villisca's. Uh, I already read that paragraph. Dear God, Kayla, get your shit together. <laughs> okay, so. <laughs> you okay. Uh, back to the other murders. Okay. The murders in Colorado Springs were closely related in execution to those in the Moore house. H.C. Mm-hmm. Wayne, his wife and child, and Mrs. A.J. Burnham were found dead, murdered with an axe. Bed sheets were used to cover the windows to prevent passerbys from looking at the Moore house. The murderer hung aprons and skirts to cover the windows. As in the murders in Villisca, the murderer in Colorado Springs wiped the blood off his axe and covered the heads of his victims with the bedclothes. Mm-hmm. Mansfield was also... Where the hell did I talk about Mansfield? Oh, okay. So back to William, apparently, because I jumped around because that's how my brain works. Okay. Um... So Mansfield was also a prime suspect of the Burns Detective Agency of Kansas City and Detective James Newton Wilkerson. I don't think I could say that name 
10 times fast without screwing it up every time. Nope, I couldn't either. It's fine. <laughs> You're fine. It's all Who fine. suggested that he was a cocaine addicted killer? Oh. According to contemporary news reports, Wilkerson believed Mansfield was responsible for the axe murders of his wife, infant child, father in law, and mother in law in Blue Island, Illinois, on July 5th of 1914. Okay, then. Two years after the Villisca murders. The axe murders committed in Paola, Kansas, four days before the Villisca murders. And the murders of Jeannie Peterson, Jenny Peer- Peterson, and Jenny Miller in Aurora, Illinois. Uh-huh. According to Wilkerson's investigation, all of the murders were committed in precisely the same manner, indicating that the same man probably committed them. Wilkerson stated that he could prove that Mansfield was present in each of the differing crime scenes on the night of the murders. In each murder, the victims were hacked to death with an axe, and the mirrors in the homes were a burning lamp with the chimney off was left at the foot of the bed, and a basin in which the murderer washed was found in the kitchen. In each case, the murderer avoided leaving fingerprints by wearing gloves. Smart. Yeah. <laughs> which Wilkerson believed it was strong evidence that the man was Mansfield, who knew his fingerprints were on file at the Federal Military Prison at Leavenworth. But... That's a really strong accusation to throw out. Right. Like, you better have concrete right. proof. Like, a picture of them there. Right. <laughs> like, even now. Like, there's so many shows that, you know, teenagers can watch because they have Netflix. Right. To find out how to commit the perfect murder. <sighs> Like, I've, I used to watch Forensic Files for fun with my grandpa. Right. No, I, okay. Right. Anyway. <laughs> and here we are. It's fine. But. That's a really strong accusation to throw out. So, Wilkerson managed to convince a grand jury to open an investigation in 1916. Okay. And Mansfield was arrested and brought to Montgomery County from Kansas City. Mm-hmm. Payroll records, however, provided an alibi that placed Mansfield in Illinois at the time of the Villisca murders. He was released for a lack of evidence and later won a lawsuit he brought against Wilkerson and was awarded $2,225. I mean... Which, in 1916, was a lot of money. Yeah. Do I know what it translates to right now? Nope. Absolutely not. No, I'm not doing that. <laughs> Normally that's my job, but I'm not in the mood. So uh, here we are. Right. <laughs> Wilkerson believed that pressure from Jones not only resulted in Mansfield's release, but also in the subsequent arrest and trial of Reverend Kelly. However, R.H. Thorpe, a restaurant owner from Shenandoah, Iowa, identified Mansfield as the man he saw the morning after the Villisca murders boarding a train at Clorinda. This man said he walked from Villisca 
If proven to be true, the testimony would disprove Mansfield's alibi. Furthermore, it was repeated. I reported tonight? Whatsoever. Reported that a Miss <laughs> Vina Tompkins Christ. of Marshalltown. Marshalltown? Marshallton? Marshallton. That's horrible. Was on her way to testify that she heard three men in the woods plotting to murder the Moore family a short time before the killings. See, that's another instance of someone being dumb. Why would you do that out in the open? Right. If that's where they did that. Right. Assuming there's more than one person. Right. Henry Lee Moore was a suspected serial killer who was not related to the Slane Moore family. Okay. Who was convicted of the murder of his mother and grandmother several months after the murders in Villisca. His weapon of choice being an axe. Before and after the murders in Villisca. Very similar axe murders on his mother and grandmother were committed, and all of the cases showing striking similarities, leading to the strong suspicion that some or all of the crimes were committed by an axe murdering serial killer. Okay. Um, Sam Moyer, who was Josiah's brother-in-law, often threatened to kill Josiah over upon further investigation, Moyer's alibi cleared him of the crime. I mean, okay. Do what you gotta do. Right. So, we have no idea who fucking killed them. Now on to the paranormal side of things. I've only got a couple things. Okay. So, for years, the... Villisca Axe Murder House has had claims of being haunted. Nearly every night, different paranormal teams filled the home, waiting to capture evidence, um, hoping to reveal the unknown mysteries surrounding the murders. Rachel Ryan wrote an article where she states that on May 30th of 2014, her paranormal investigative team took a turn, took their turn with an overnight stay in the house. Aside from personal experiences, including being grabbed, they also captured 16 EVPs within six minutes. Ugh. Along with an impressive full-spectrum video um, still photo that featured pre- several unique anomalies including an unknown shadowy face complete with visible pupils, ears, and hair. Ew! There are also multiple photos attached to this article that explains um, what she's saying they captured. So I looked in this website. You can, like, legit see what she's talking about. I didn't watch the EVP video. Because I was at work doing notes. But. Like this photo. You can't deny it. Even if. So. Well now I have to look it up. I used to mess around with. Um, What's the website? So. Her website kind of goes a little bit in. Depth too. Josiah's head was struck. And estimated 30 times. Christ. You're going to think I'm stupid, but this person that I found in a video kind of looks like Marcus. 
What is that? Like, that's the video still. And you can see that it looks like a little kid. Yeah. Almost looks like two. Yeah. But you can see, you can, like, tell there's hair and there's eyes and there's a face. Tell me this doesn't kind of look like Marcus. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) And then here's another one. Same thing. You can clearly see distinct eyes and hair. It looks like a little boy in the window. Yeah. Um, Oh, what is this? So there's a list of her EVPs that they caught. Um, Ooh. They heard mom, a whistle. They heard something inaudible, and then my mom and dad. They heard mommy, blank, did it. They heard a growl, whistling, someone say, "Uh uh-huh. Something that they couldn't make out. Another growl. Another unknown EVP. A really deep exhale. Someone say, tell the killer that... And then it went inaudible. Another deep exhale. A short scream. And tell them. So apparently there's a movie about this. I don't know that. The Velisca Axe Murder House. Why does it have to look like that? Why does it have to look like that? (laughs) What the fuck is that? That's a kid. I'm one of the kids. Why does it have to look like that? Yeah. Why does it have to be a scary I movie? Know. I don't like it. Anyways, back to... Sorry. So, Caden Bundy did an investigation at the residence. And this is an excerpt from his website. It says, around 4.30 p.m., we began setting up our pedalian for the night. As I was sitting around on the leather couch across from the Stillinger's girl's bedroom, I saw a shadow enter the doorway from the left side of the room and then shoot back into the room. The shadow was approximately six feet tall and only appeared about a third of the way through the doorway before moving back. The same occurrence never repeated itself throughout the rest of the investigation and no one was moving in the room when I saw the shadow. Mm-hmm. When the rest of the crew entered the home, two people refused to go near the leather couch after feeling a sensation of spider webs on the back of their legs. No, I'm good. (laughs) One team member described the experience as if they were standing in the same spot where someone was sitting with their legs extended out from the couch. Mm -hmm. I have kids, and that does tend (laughs) to feel weird. Like, if you're standing in front of someone and they have their legs out and they start moving them Mm -hmm. and you feel like that weird sensation like there's something there but they're not quite touching you yeah yeah anyways (laughs) (laughs) um later in the evening we received numerous spikes on the emf going all the way up to the red lights in one area of the room (coughs) while we were asking questions in order to receive responses on the emf we could hear creaking noises in the adjacent bedroom 
We were all in the parlor at the time and hadn't heard creaking in the room until then. The house was oddly still and silent, so hearing noises was difficult to debunk. I mean, it is an old house. You would think you'd hear some a lot creaking, of creaking or settling. And, yeah. Around 3 a.m., footsteps and creaking noises could be heard from the upstairs children's bedroom directly above where we <laughs> Around 4 a.m., we could hear tapping from the kitchen. The sound mimicked that of someone at re- repeatedly hitting the metal of the stove. Repetitiously is what I wrote down. And apparently I was feeling very, very, you know, generous. Ballsy. <laughs> Ballsy with your vocabulary. Oh, Lord. In the morning after waking up from an unsatisfying sleep, one member of the team reported having felt as if someone was tugging at the end of his sleeping bag near his feet. The pole was so abrupt that he woke up three times during the night. Oh. Yeah. No, thank you. Nope. Mm-mm. Do I still want to go? Fuck it. <laughs> no, I'm good. And this is a personal account. Um, this is from Pat from Wisconsin. It says, my first visit to the... Ballista Axe Murder House was in June of 2009. It was a simple day tour of the house in the cemetery. But since that very day, I have been hooked. Since that time, I have spent many overnight visits at the house. And not one time have I had any regrets. This person's been there numerous times. And that kind of, like, stuck out. And I'm like, okay. As far as paranormal activity goes, the house comes through loud and proud. Over the past few years, I've accumulated many EVPs from the house, both live and residual. I have also called out the names of the more children and Lena Ellinger, who were all victims on that fateful night, to turn my flashlight on and off when asked, and they do just that. These impressive paranormal incidents occurred in the blue room, where Lena and Ina were murdered, and the upstairs bedroom where the four more children were murdered. I've also felt cold spots in this house that I cannot offer an explanation for, but were there. Based on my personal experiences and EVP captures along with my own gut feeling, I believe that the spirits of all eight victims still dwell within that house. The burning question is why? Is it due to fear and trauma as a result of the incident itself? Or is it because that house is the last place they knew? Or all of the above? Or none of the above? A couple of years back, I became a member of a paranormal investigation team called International Ghost Research Society. And we have spent a few overnights at the house, gathering plenty of audio and video evidence to convince even the most hardcore skeptic that the house is most definitely haunted. This house is a mystique all of its own, It will rival any other allegedly haunted location. An overnight visit to this house will make most skeptics believers come sunrise the next morning. What happened in that house in June of 1912 was terrible and tragic. It was something that should never have happened. And I believe that there are many secrets embedded within the town of Villisca 
concerning the axe murders that may never be revealed. In closing, I'm glad I discovered the house as a paranormal investigation hotspot and a place I remember, a place to remember the victims as well. I look forward to many more memorable visits with this house. You're going back. <laughs> and I'm kind of, I'm wondering if the house is like drawing this person in. Possible. Could be. No, thank you. I'll stick with your lengthy review of the, the house and right. ghosties. So, <laughs> I did realize there was a few things I missed in the whole story. So, going back to the crime scene. Mm -hmm. Bedclothes were placed over what was left of Josiah and Sarah's heads. An undershirt was made of gauze was placed over Herman's head. A dress covered Catherine's. And he also covered the remaining victim's faces with various clothing. Okay. Garments were draped over every mirror in the house, hiding any reflection. All of the window curtains were drawn shut, and two windows without curtains were shaded with clothing. Gouges were left on both of the bedroom ceilings from the axe being swung at the victims. Jesus. So you were really swinging. Yes. Axe marks were also found in the middle of the children's room ceiling from what is suspected that the killer was swinging the axe in like a circular motion. Yeah. Um, the kerosene-filled lamp was on the floor at the end of the bed. The chimney of the lamp was removed and placed under the dresser. Another lamp of kerosene was placed at the foot of the Stillinger girl's bed, and it was also missing the chimney. So were they hoping it was going to burn down? I'm assuming so. Um, we know that the axe was in the guest room where the Stillinger girl slept. It was found next to the door, covered in blood, but an attempt was made to wipe it clean. So there was a basin in the kitchen where they found that he had cleaned himself off. Right. Whoever killed him. Here's the weird part. So a two-pound slab of wrapped bacon was left in a towel near the axe. It was cut from a bacon chunk found in the icebox. So, next to the axe and the bacon sat a short piece of keychain that did not belong to the Morse. There'd be bacon. I don't know. An untouched plate of prepared food was left on the kitchen table, along with a bowl of bloody water from the killer washing his hands. Again. Bacon. <laughs> <laughs> Why? <laughs> Why, <sighs> like, just cut off? No bite marks, no nothing? No. It was a two-pound slab of bacon. Maybe he was going to take it with him? I don't know. Maybe. All of the doors were locked behind the killer, and the Morse house keys were taken. Creepy. Yeah. Like, there's certain things that just don't make sense. 
like the bacon. The bacon doesn't make sense. The meal doesn't make sense. Well, unless. So say it was the Reverend. Okay. He comes over after he cleans up at the church and gets done. They allow him to come in, say, hey, we're going to go to bed. Kids are already asleep. Go ahead and eat, clean up. What's his face? Because he's um, only in town for X amount of time. And Sarah's the one who put all of that children's day program together. Golden State Killer did that. Yeah. He would leave meals behind. Or half-eaten meals. That is weird, though. It's a lot to try to figure out. Yeah. Just a random slab of bacon on the floor. But, but that's the thing. Like, <laughs> it even says you or says that you know Reverend Kelly was only in town to do the Children's Day program, right? So it's possible that it could have been you know I can't even hear myself. It's like if he was in town, Sarah put everything together. Mm-hmm. Maybe they didn't have any vacancy at a hotel close by. She offered to let him stay. That would make sense. So it would mean that his first confession, and he could have taken the two pounds of bacon and meant to take it with him when he left because he didn't have any other food. But again, why would you leave a meal if that was the case? It's just a lot. Hmm. I don't know. I don't either. That one's... I mean, obviously, it hasn't been solved, so... Right. It's one of the um, unsolved cases that, like, kind of bugs the shit out of me. But it's still unsolved. Yeah, that's... I don't know how I feel about that. It's okay. I decided to start watching Ted Bundy documentaries. Yeah. The other night to fall asleep. And Marcus is like, really? You're going to put this on and then you're going to go to bed? Yeah. I'm like, what? Do you want to stay up and watch it? Because we can. <laughs> and he's like, I have to work tomorrow. <laughs> oh. Well. With that being said, you can find all of our socials in our bio, in our show notes, on our Facebook page. And the bios on all of our social media. Yes. <laughs> Just um, saying. <laughs> if we still have an email. Yes. For you to send in your personal stories. I kids. knew we were forgetting something. <laughs> we keep doing all of the little quick little endings and we always forget it's the fine. email. It's fine. But um, if you want to show or show us, send in the gravy. Your personal stories or cases you want us to cover. Um, shout out to our one person who's done that so far and had us cover Joe Arity. Um, we would really appreciate that. We want to try and do yeah. listener stories. Um, I mean, we did have my mom do Mothman. Yeah. But we want your paranormal stories.
true crime adjacent. Yes. Hopefully you were not involved. Hopefully. Hopefully. I would hate to have to, like, nonchalantly turn somebody in for being a suspect <laughs> on something. <laughs> anyway. Oh, God. If we get to... 250 followers on Facebook and Instagram, we will do a personalized Tumblr giveaway. It will have some other freebies inside. Uh, I'm a big advocate for sending candy with all uh-huh. of the stuff that I make. It's just something I do. And normally it's Albany's candy, so it's mm. freaking phenomenal. Um, I did buy Albany's gummy bears at the store yesterday. But I will not send chocolate in the mail. That just is begging for bad juju. Unless it's winter. We're getting ready to go into warm months. Okay. It didn't sound like you were talking about melting chocolate. Melting. It, I thought you had a no, chocolate <laughs> aversion that we were going to have to I reevaluate like our friendship. Very much. I know <laughs> this. I will eat it if it's there, but it's not <laughs> my go-to. I will eat, you know, Lifesaver gummy rings or other things before I touch chocolate. Yeah, yeah. You know, because... As you eat M&M's. That I haven't touched since, you know, <laughs> the beginning of the episode. Anyway, um, if we hit 250 followers on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, we will do a <laughs> hoodie giveaway. Christ. Which, by the way, I actually found better pictures of our hoodies that don't have us in them, so we can that <laughs> <laughs> um, we can post to show you what they look like because there's only two in existence. Even my mom doesn't have one, and my mom is like, "I will support you no matter what. Just give me one." And I'm like, "Eh, but do you follow my pages?" Sorry, no. mom. Anyway. <laughs> Good God. Uh, do you have anything you want to add? Uh, not that I can think of. All right. Well, stay safe. And try not to become the next 10-0. Yeah. <laughs>